Welcome to the Marketing Agility Podcast, where we discuss all things related to the growing field of Agile marketing. This podcast is co-produced by Frank Days and the Agile Marketing Alliance, so that we can learn, share, and grow together. I'm Frank Days, and here with Jim Ewell, we will be your hosts for today's episode. Joining us today is Trisha Broderick. She's the founder of Ignite Insight and Innovation, a co-author of Lead Without Blame, Building Resilient Learning Teams, and someone who is passionate about helping people and teams succeed. Trisha, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> great. Well, great. Well, why don't we get kicking in? Jim, do you want to get us started today? So Trisha, the subtitle of your book is Building Resilient Learning Teams. And I've always heard the phrase high performing teams, at least that's more familiar to me. So what's the difference between a resilient learning team and a high performing team? Yeah, we, Diane and I went rounds about this a little bit in terms of like, oh, are we going to create a new term? And like, people don't understand the career. Everybody calls everything a team. It's not. I'm from Michigan, Detroit Lions, not a team, right? Like <laughs> They're better this know, year. <laughs> if, if you just call it a team, it makes it a team, right? So let's tack on high performance. But, but I think that was actually part of what we were talking about is, is there, there's this evolution to, to creating teams and, and you can get performance at different levels, but there's points of getting that high performance when, when you're really starting to scale, when a leader is not the hub and, and the single point of failure and making sure everything's getting done. But what we saw happening as especially as COVID hit and just teams that were being called high performing, that they were getting things done, they were scaling, they were all of a sudden were falling apart, like just completely disintegrating, kind of reverting back to bad habits. And it was, and it started making us think it's like, what is high performance that lasts? That isn't, you know, like, isn't in the moment in the certain conditions, but can handle any conditions that are coming your way and, and really building in that. So what we kind of see is that we're building resilient learning teams on top of high performing teams in, in the sense that it's when complexity gets to be too much and you're now in chaos, can your team still perform? Can your team still deliver? Can your team still scale? And I think COVID and murder hornets and fire tornadoes and all the things that happened, right, really proved that even in some of the teams that we felt like were in that higher performance category, didn't know how to handle chaos, didn't know how to handle when it just felt like too much. And so that's where the tools teams needed in order to handle those environments too, because that seems to be more common <laughs> now than anything else. The theme of the podcast, obviously, is around Agile and for Agile for marketers. How does Agile fit into this? And how does, does Agile make it any easier in so, the process of creating resilient learning teams? In theory, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly am so excited to be part of this podcast because I was talking with somebody and I remember taking the VP of sales to the Agile conference in 2015. And there was... Oh, actually not, sorry, 15 is when I helped create it. I was still a TechSmith. It was like 2012. The VP of sales went to the Agile conference in 2012 because one of the things that I was experiencing as the director of development was I had marketing leaders going, you're going too fast. We're going to ignore you every three months. And I had sales going, I don't understand this Agile thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, Agile is not just for IT. It's, I need everybody understanding this. And so I started with the sales, but I like marketing and, and so 
in theory, agile should, but only when it's really business agility, only when we're really looking at it from as a whole, how are we making sure that the organization is adapting to what is necessary is, is discovering value together in a collaborative way. So in theory, it should help, but I, I, where does that I, break down, Tricia? Where, where does Agile break down in, create, in helping teams be more resilient and learning? I think it breaks down in, in a couple fashions. That's a very loaded question. It breaks down in a lot of like people going through the motions, right? We're yep. doing this theater, whether it's right. Scrum or Safe or Less or, you know, Roll Your Own, right? And they're going through the motions like, well, we do a daily stand-up, so we must be Agile. I was like, no, that's not. At the core, if you're about learning, right, and about the growth mindset, then it should apply. But if you're pitting marketing against sales, against development, against, you know, like, and you're not working together as a unit in an organization, you're in trouble anyways. And so it starts falling down in different ways. I remember a team, we were struggling because we had to get marketing copy. We had to get marketing copy. We weren't cross-functional. And and marketing had no knowledge of Agile at that time because, it was agile, it was software development, right? And we were coming at it from that point and we kept bringing in the work each sprint and, and marketing was like, I don't know what a sprint is. So we never communicated. We never worked together. We never explained the value, not just to them, but to us and, and collaboratively together, right? But we kept going, well, you're not giving us the marketing copy every sprint. And then we get upset and then bad things would happen. And so- I think it falls down a lot in the cases because we're not having a shared purpose of why we're trying to be agile, how it's helping, allowing different disciplines to evolve with it, to learn with it, to experiment with it. And that's why I get so excited about a podcast like this, because I can't wait and I get excited to know what marketing will come out with, what sales discipline, HR starts to come out with. But I think a lot of times it's lip service of the tactical doing it and not really the discovery of value together that causes the most, which is learning. That's the essence of the resilient learning part. But I don't think we often learn we want the check marks. And trust me, I love a good check mark. I do. But part of the check marks need to be about learning together as well too. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think there's definitely a bias in terms of my, in my personal experience in, ag- in doing agile, it's, it's about managing the task list and not managing the vision, right? How do you find that shared purpose? I mean, do you see, how do you see organizations building those bridges and relationships and kind of align becoming to that shared purpose? Yeah. I made mistakes, as does everybody. You're human. And in my head, I had that vision of like, get your house in order first, right? Get your stuff all going. And so it was like, get my department, get my engineering unit going and what we're doing and doing. And then it was like, marketing, you're going too slow. Well, that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. That wasn't appropriate. And then it was like, just do it. Don't you get it? Right? Like, no. And and so I think one of the best things that people can do is that learning together and going, meeting people where they're at. What you have a whole set of best practices that you've built your experience and knowledge and mastery on. What does it mean now to explore, right? And And to do that together. Because at the end of the day, nobody's walking around an organization going, how do I make everybody else miserable today? Right? Like people are not doing that. And yet we're also not meeting people where they're at 
And as a result, we're not able to learn together. And that then causes all sorts of issues in an organization with it. So in hindsight, with that, I I really wish I would have approached it from a place of like, what are your problems in marketing? (laughs) What are your challenges? And how can I maybe help or how can we experiment together to solve those versus you're not giving me copy on the time frame I need, right? Like, and it just, it became uh, not helpful in helping marketing evolve or sales or any of the other business agility dynamics. Trisha, you talked a lot about the relationship between you were in the product side and then there's marketing and there's sales. And traditionally those departments, they don't particularly get along. They kind of ask there's always the tension. They blame. Right, there's a lot of contention. They blame the other group. You know, sales says, you know, those leads that you sent me marketing, they suck. And marketing says you didn't follow up on them fast enough or in the right way or whatever happens, okay? And one of your first chapters is about how it's important to break free from blame and shame, okay? I really like that that concept. Could you just elaborate a little bit about that and why it's so important? And I think this goes to what we're trying to accomplish. Everybody already has kind of to Frank's question earlier, like that shared goal. We all want to be successful. We all want to deliver for the customer. We already have that meaningful shared goal, yet we create structures in an organization that pit that tension. What is marketing going to do? What is sales going to do in development? And none of those often, those goals or those measurements, the OKRs or whatever you want to, you know, have often require a lot of collaborate. Like I can get my part done even if you're not successful, right? I can be successful even if you're not successful. And it causes this tension. And as much as I say, nobody's walking around trying to blame people, we are walking around looking for false sense of security. And so we think that if we can find some mistakes somebody or some department made, then we can avoid that issue in the future. Except... Maybe it was, maybe the mistake is trying to find a mistake. Maybe everybody's doing the best they can with the situation at hand and spending all the time looking for who messed up is actually causing people to be worried about learning, to be worried about discovery, to be worried about engaging and working together with other people because I don't want to be blamed later if I make a mistake. And creates this, unfortunately, lack of collaboration, lack of learning, but we do it trying to find this like false sense of security that we can avoid it, right? I've been the person like, I don't want to ever make the same mistake twice. There's always different system conditions that might make that mistake, even though you are pretending that it's the same one might not actually be the same one. And so I just think in a lot of the cases, even when we're not walking around blaming people, we've created environments that cause a lot of shame that leads to people not doing their best work, not being willing to learn, not being willing to engage with other people, which counters our very big shared goal of being successful in delivering. And we just get in this bad cycle with it. You know, and this seems like a particularly important lesson for leaders. I mean, I know that when I was a manager at first, I I thought of myself as a problem solver. If there was something wrong, I needed to go find who was the problem and fix them, right? You know? Not only did you think that, you were probably told that. I certainly was. Yeah, sure. I was told I need to be the expert. I told I was, everything comes and goes with me. I'm the single point. I'm the single throat to choke, right? right? Like Buck you're stops told, here. Yeah. All, all these things. Right. And I think it gets really scary for a lot of leaders. One, because we do feel that weight, right? We do feel that accountability, which then causes the blame and the shame. 
But I also think it's really scary for leaders because we're promoted as leaders because we are problem solvers. We we do like a good problem. I do like a good check mark, right? (laughs) So I try and work with leaders to say, you don't stop being a problem solver. What problem you're solving changes. That it's no longer you trying to fix the individual problem that they're facing, whether they're getting the copy or not getting the copy, but the condition and the environment that's causing this contention, that's causing the blame, that's causing the shame. What is going on in the environment, not with an individual that is leading to those problems, to those mistakes? And so you're still, in fact, now you've got a lot harder of a problem set to solve. But they're bigger problems and they're a different set of problems. And I think the message a lot of leaders get is you're still the individual contributor, the expert on the team. And and now you're not even talking about a resilient learning team. You can't even create high performing teams when you're that single point of failure. Well, it's an interesting thing. And I've been in a number of companies that have kind of gone through the, you know, my last experience, we went from the 20 something million to over a hundred million. And there's some, definitely some evolution in terms of the team and the structure of the department. You know, when you're a $20 million company and you have a you know, half dozen people in marketing, you as the leader of a marketing team can be in the middle of everything and touch everything and be the decider and the gatekeeper, whatever, whatever name you want to give to it. But as you start to scale, you have no choice, but to hire lieutenants who can take ownership and direction. And It's interesting because I think you talk about essential motivators and I read the list and I thought, ah, that hit the nail on the head. As you start to scale, your job as the leader is really more about purpose, like providing purpose to the team, providing vision and goals, talking about autonomy. Like as you scale again, you can't, as a leader, have your hands in the dough for every cake that's being baked, right? That's just already- Nor should you. I mean, nor that's should you, yeah. nor should you, even if you could, you yeah, should. even if you could. And then co-intelligence, which I think is a great way of saying alignment or, you know, trying to make sure that everyone, you can do things as you noted, things like OKRs and funnel meetings and all kinds of stuff, but having a, some shared intelligence and shared view of the future. Can you explain that the, I, the first two made more, a lot of sense to me, purpose and autonomy. Can you talk a little bit more about co-intelligence and what that means and why, I guess, why it's so important. I've been a fan of Daniel Pink's work when it comes to drive, where he highlighted knowledge, cognitive skill-based, having, you know, purpose, mastery, and autonomy. Or you look at David Marquet's work in Turn the Ship Around, where he talks about competence, control, and clarity, right? So these concepts have been around, but we tweaked it a little bit. We built off of it because in a lot of ways with both Daniel Pink and David Marquet, they were talking in terms of individual motivation. And we started thinking about it in terms of team motivation and purpose still was very common, right? Like you need a shared meaningful purpose. Otherwise everybody's going to go off and do things. Autonomy was that sense of ownership of what you need to work on. Those two still made very much sense, but we were uncovering experiences where mastery was struggling, causing us issues. It leads into what we were just talking about in terms of like, but I'm the expert. I want to keep growing my skill set, but I want to grow it in this particular expertise. And and we're really struggling with, wait, we also say the best knowledge, the best discovery, the best value comes from the wisdom of the team or the wisdom of the crowds from James' work. And it's like, wait, if I got mastery here, but it's almost like on an individual front, what does it really mean to look at mastery on a team front? And so we start talking about this concept of co-intelligence where I bring to the table a set of experience, knowledge, beliefs, 
whatnot, you and each of you bring to the table a set of experiences, knowledge, and beliefs. So co-intelligent isn't just the sum of like, okay, you have marketing skills, I have development skills, and so now we can cover both marketing and development. What co-intelligence also says is, is isn't just what you bring to the table and what I bring to the table. When we combine together, when we learn together, when we grow together, when we collaborate together, there is a new level of knowledge and experience and potential and creativity that is unlocked from our co-intelligence, from our combination. And, and it's unique and it's different and it's unknown. And so like there were things like when Diana and I were writing the book that Neither one of us came in going, okay, we already have all the expertise and knowledge on either one of these topics between the two of us. We had to use our co-intelligence to dive into this topic, to explore this topic, to to uncover and unlock. And so co-intelligence actually taps into this next level potential with the combination of the people you have, not just the individual mastery and, and skills that each individual has, but it's the combination cumulative and the sum of it, but also what that combination creates and unlocks. Does that make sense? It does. But does this also involve cross-training and getting appreciation for the strengths of what people with different backgrounds bring and, and that sort of thing? I mean, is that part of it as well? Absolutely. It just absolutely, because then I'll go like, oh, we have to absolutely go to gym for this, right? Or something right. along those lines. And by just working with gym, I might pick up a little bit of it. And so then I'm we're sharing it, we're helping each other grow. But it's also like just if you and I were talking and engaging, have you ever worked with somebody where they say something and a new thought completely pops into your head where you're not experienced in it at all? And you're like, oh, I wonder if we could actually do this. And you're like now exploring a whole new territory because that person triggered something in your head that made you think of that. That's that next level of that co-intelligence that we're also tapping into. So it's not just sharing current skills, it's unlocking new skills. You know, that's how I got started with agile marketing. You know, I mean, I talked to a developer about agile and I thought, you know what, that could be applied to marketing. You talked about the three motivators, purpose, autonomy, and and co-intelligence. Okay. And those are obviously critical, but you say in your book that they may not be enough. Okay. And you listed... In your book, you said that that may not be enough. And you list four factors that you call the the resilient, resilient factors. Okay, resilience factors. So we don't have time to cover all four. But can you talk about the first factor, which you call the collaborative connection factor? What is that? And why does it make a team? So so actually, this kind of goes full circle to where we started a little bit, where you said, well, what is the difference between a high performing team and a resilient learning team? Right. You know, I built a lot of teams based on those essential motivators of purpose, well, at the time, mastery, now co-intelligence and autonomy, but then couldn't handle the chaos, right? It couldn't handle that increased complexity. And so then we started thinking about, well, what are the things that often go under the radar that aren't often addressed? That is the game changers when it comes to dealing with chaos, when it comes to dealing with uncertainty, when it comes to really helping a team stay in that high performing, taking it to that next level. And so we, we talked about these four things. And so the collaborative connection one, was an interesting one that we came in. There's kind of two parts to it. And we definitely labeled it intentionally. So one is a lot of people mistake cooperation for collaboration. Me saying, hey, let me help you out, Jim, with your part is different than, hey, let's build this together. Right. Those are different things. 
And a lot of people are like, oh, we've all gone remote and we're all working just fine, Trish. And I'm like, oh yeah, how are you working? They're like, well, he hands me this and then I work on that part. And I'm like, so you're cooperating, you're not collaborating. And so one was just really an emphasis on what collaboration truly means because you can't get into that co-intelligence. You can't get into that learning. You're not going to get into dealing with uncertainty as an individual. And so that was one part of it. And then the other part was, is the connection. And we use the word connection instead of relationship. I think people are always like, I don't have to be friends with people I work with. And you are right. You do not (laughs) have to be friends with people you have to work with. But there does have to be trust and there does have to be psychological safety and there does have to be a connection. There has to be. Otherwise, you're not going to collaborate. It's really easy to forget about somebody. I remember one team member once was the sole remote person. And this was like, I don't know, 2010, 11 timeframe. And everybody's like, oh, we forgot about him because he just wasn't there, right? Like, so how are you intentionally building trust and connection? Because if you're just walking around going, I have an open door policy and nobody uses your door, you don't have an open door policy. (laughs) If if you're walking around going trust, but verify, you don't have trust. If you're walking around, right? Like, and we do these things, like just trust people. It's like, no, 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 no. How are you actively, intentionally building connections within the team? How are you actively building and tuning those connections as they continue on and grow and develop and, and things like that? And if you as a leader are not, thinking about the collaboration, you are not thinking and proactively creating connections and you're like, oh, it will just work itself out. Welcome to why your team is not resilient. Welcome to why your team is not able to handle chaos because these, you'll get clicks of people. You'll get some people that will magically like, we just jive, we get it. But a click is not going to create a full whole team learning experience that you're going to get the best results. And it is shocking to me how many leaders, they're like, well, people hate team building exercises. I'm like, you are right. I hate them too. Do not ask me what my favorite color is. Nobody cares. Like, but genuine building of connections is different. It's not the trust fall. It's making a concerted effort to creating an environment where that learning can happen. Because when you need to do the learning is not the time when you're like, okay, let's all get to know each other. Like, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you've missed the mark. Yeah. And a little bit of that serendipity of just, you know, having the connections and finding those random commonalities that come from maybe you know, we lose a little bit of that in the all Zoom all the time post COVID world that we maybe had when we were in an office and could have a ad hoc lunch previous life, I used to do a lot during COVID, a lot of on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock, start slacking a bunch of random people and say, let's have a social drink, a virtual social drink. And some of that kind of, it's hard, you know, you you lost a lot of that in this new world order, but it's still possible. You just have to kind of make an honest and strong effort to make it happen. And and that became an even bigger point of the chapters. Like, what are you intentionally doing as a leader? Because if you are not, and you just assuming this is happening, you're yeah. going to be in trouble. Yeah, you know, Trisha, Trisha, I can't leave without hearing at least one suggestion from you about how you build that trust. Not the trust falls, not all that other stuff. How do you how do you do it? So I like one of my favorite activities that I'll do often with teams is learning a little bit about what people are motivated by. And, and so there's, there's different activities out there. We put one in the book that Diana does a lot. I use a motivation technique 
that I've changed from Jurgen Apollo's management 3.0, but it's like, what are people motivated by? And, and learning that I don't care what your favorite color is. I don't care what your favorite movie is, but I do care that you're motivated by order or that you're motivated by purpose. And that kind of more genuine relatability to, to handling things. Different one that I'll do is, is like, I have a sort of pictures that people can choose from. And I'm like, what's your superhero power that you bring to the workplace? Right. And I think so many people use team building as like these fast friends thing. And I am just not down for that. But if you apply it to the workplace and saying, what are you bringing to the workplace? Like what breaks your trust? Like having, having a team chartering session and actually saying, when we break our team charter, what are we going to do? Right? Like, because it's going to happen. We can say something like, be professional, be respectful. And then there's going to walk into a meeting and Trish is going to be perceived as not being respectful because she had too much, you know, caffeine that day and she's on a soapbox and she's freaking out. Right. And in that moment, how do we want to engage with each other when we feel someone's being disrespectful or interrupted them or done something? And so I radical transparency is another big part of building trust in terms of like, look, let's acknowledge that we're all human. This is what we want. And then something's going to happen. So how are we going to deal with it when that does happen? And what do we want? So I incorporate a lot of that in my team chartering. So kind of some activities, some uh, some bigger, you know, things like that. There isn't one list, but those are some examples. Trisha, we appreciate you taking the time today to joining us and sharing all these fresh ideas. It gets me thinking, your co-intelligence point, got me thinking about a whole bunch of ideas. Thanks again for joining us. And for for our listeners out there, find the show notes to this episode at agilemarketingblock.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more, there's some great resources on using Agile in marketing, Agile Marketing Alliance website. Thanks again, Trisha, for joining us today. And everyone, please stay agile.